Okay, I'm going to start off this sermon with something that we've done for years here at Wayside. I'm going to say, He is risen, and then all of you are going to repeat back, He is risen indeed. Super simple. Everyone got it? All right, here we go. He is risen. That feels good. Now it's Easter. Now we can get get rolling. Um, Over the past week, our church family has been reflecting on what's called the Passion Week. Uh, uh, It's 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 the week leading up to the crucifixion and uh, burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that term for passion, that's kind of an outdated term because we don't think about what it was originally intended for when they chose it from Latin back in the medieval times. But the Latin word that we get the word passion from means to suffer to endure suffering. And so the Passion Week is really all about focusing our attention on the suffering of the Christ, Jesus Christ. Uh, our current sermon series in Hebrews, we've been in Hebrews since the beginning of the year, and uh, and it's been a fascinating study. Uh, at least I think so. I don't know if you would agree, the folks in the congregation, but it really has been interesting. It, it, we've been just going deep dive into some of these uh, concepts that honestly I just didn't understand very well from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. But once again, I feel like God has perfectly aligned our Hebrew sermon series with the commemoration of the the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you've today's passage is really all about how and why Jesus suffered. I want to make that clear. I, I don't want to take us back to uh, Good Friday. We're going to celebrate the resurrection today. But you need to know that in our passage, we're going to see Jesus suffer and we're going to we're going to explore why he suffered, how he suffered. But in light of what we're celebrating today, which is the resurrection. So really, if you've never suffered before or you don't plan on ever suffering in this lifetime, then you're going to have a hard time applying our sermon today. You're going to have a hard time applying this passage from the book of Hebrews. However, if you have suffered, if you have experienced suffering of any sort, my hope and my prayer is that your heart, your soul will be comforted today by what you hear. Suffering, as you well know, can lead us away from God. But the suffering of Jesus Christ was meant to reconnect our hearts to our creator, to our father, God, our heavenly father. That's the purpose. And that's what we're going to look at. And the hope that we have in Christ, which is unique, it's unique among any world religion. It's unique among any system that might offer us hope. The hope that we have in Christ is is unique in that it allows us to persevere through the suffering in this life as we await the life to come in which there will be no suffering. The big idea today is simply this. It's that Jesus suffered to save us. And we see this uh, in our passage. We see two basic realities around the suffering of Christ. First, we see that Christ suffered with us. He entered into our suffering. And then on the back half of our passage, the last two verses, we're going to see that Christ suffered for us. So first of all, Jesus suffered with us. Uh, We're going to look at verses 7 and 8. So I think it's going to come up on the screen, but follow along with me if you have a Bible. Uh, We are in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Uh, It says this, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered up prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. 
And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now, I know this is an Easter sermon, but I've got to go back to Christmas real quick and explain something uh, that's going to help contextualize what we talk about today. The reason that God the Son, who has existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, forever, the reason that God the Son came to earth and became that baby in the manger that we celebrate and worship on Christmas was to, get this, was to experience human suffering and death. There is no other reason why God the Son would be incarnated, that he would enter into the brokenness of our humanity except to experience the full conditions of our humanity, the full suffering and death that you can only have with a body as a human being. He had to become human in order to experience this suffering and death. In the passion stories that we see in the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus offering prayers and pleadings with loud cries and tears on two different occasions, very close together. He was, he was doing that while he was on the cross. We see that from his words from the cross. And he was also doing that in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest, the night before his, his uh, crucifixion. From the cross, he famously cried out the opening words of Psalm 22, written a thousand years before his crucifixion. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? In the garden, he famously prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, that is the cup of suffering, let this cup pass from me. And then he says this. And we all would pray that prayer. But he follows it up by saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And when he prayed to the one who could rescue him out of death, as our passage talks about, he prayed with complete and utter dependence upon God the Father. He knew that God could keep him from ever experiencing suffering or death. He knew that God could rescue him before he suffered and died. But he also knew that God could save him out of suffering and death through his glorious resurrection. Either way, Jesus trusted his father's will and he remained completely dependent and deeply reverent in his relationship with the father in the midst of his suffering. In verse seven, we are explicitly told that God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. In other words, the father answered his son's prayer. The son prayed for the father's will to be done, and his will was ultimately accomplished through the suffering, death, and resurrection of his son. In verse 8, we read that Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now, this is, this is not... Immediately, what I thought of when I first read this and thought of obedience, this has this, this doesn't have anything to do with him being initially disobedient and then learning how to become more and more obedient to the father. OK, that's not what this is talking about. It means that the son of God experienced the the fullness of what it means to be obedient to God by by trusting in him and obeying God, even through suffering, even to the point of death, of sacrificing his life. 
God the Son became a human in order to experience our suffering. In this way, Jesus suffered with us. In doing so, Jesus showed us how to suffer well. We see that in this passage. How do you suffer well with dependence on God and reverence for God and obedience to God? You see, when we're faced with suffering, and I'll be the first one to admit this, when I'm faced with suffering, it's all too easy to do the exact opposite. We tend to blame God for our circumstances and we move toward independence from God, relying on ourselves or something else or someone else. We move towards irreverence toward God, a a, a bad attitude towards God. We start to smear his character and we move toward disobedience. Well, if this is how my life is going to play out, then I'm just going to do what I want, when I want, however I want, for as long as I can, until this life is over. We move that direction. Uh, Stacy and I have been reading um, this youth fantasy book series to our kids called The Wing Feather Saga. I recommend it uh, if you've got kiddos. You know what? I recommend it if you don't. Uh, it's that good. I mean, we're like every night. You guys know the Reikleys are reading it as well. Uh, we're slowly infecting everybody around us with this, the wing feather saga. But the author uh, is a Christian. He's also a songwriter and filmmaker. He's a really neat guy named Andrew Peterson. And, and in his books, he does this really good job of, of writing into his characters real spiritual struggles, real life spiritual struggles that you and I deal with. And at one point, uh, a teenager, a 13-year-old named Janner uh, Wingfeather, who's one of the main characters in the book, he's suffering And he's overwhelmed by the evil and the injustice in the world. And he says something that might have been said by any one of us under those circumstances. The author writes that that Jenner felt his anger rising against the maker himself. If the maker was a speaker of worlds, a benevolent Lord of all that was, then why would he allow such misery, such relentless destruction of all that was good and true? And then he goes on to say, I thought the maker would help us too, he said quietly, but it looks like we're on our own. If he's real, he doesn't care. You know, more than just about anything else, and I know you will agree with me on this, more than just about anything else we experience in this life, suffering can lead us to question God's goodness. How often have you heard, how often have you repeated the familiar question of how could a good God allow suffering to exist? Basically what Janner was crying out about. But when we see the Son of God suffering with us as we do in this passage, as we do in the Passion Narratives, we're confronted with an altogether different question that I hope you'll think about going forward. Why would a God who isn't good choose to enter into our suffering, to take our suffering upon himself, to suffer with us. Jesus models a a better way through the suffering in this life. He teaches us that it's okay to, to loudly and tearfully cry out to God. It is a biblical category called lament that you, you can cry out. That's part of our relationship we can have with a personal God. That's why he created us, was for relationships, so that we could be in a relationship with him. And part of our relationship with God is that he he calls us to cry out to him in our distress and our anguish and our pain. He invites that. He is a loving God who wants a relationship. And, And he's not a cold, distant God of deism or something that could care less about our pain, could care less about our suffering. And so, like Jesus... 
who never sinned once in his life, who was perfectly righteous in all that he did, but who still cried out loudly with tears to God. He models a better way, and he shows us how to do that, how to live through suffering with dependence, with reverence, and with obedience, trusting that God is at the same time both loving and personal and powerful to save, whether he saves us immediately out of the suffering that we're facing in this life or whether he saves us eventually and eternally in the life to come. Either way, we can be comforted knowing that Jesus suffered with us. Um, The fact that Jesus suffered with us means that we can suffer with Jesus. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus suffered with us so that now we can suffer with Jesus. I want you to consider two revelations about Jesus that we've already seen so far in Hebrews. But for those of y'all who haven't been with us, uh, they're going to come up on the screen. The first one is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. It's speaking of Jesus. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And his temptation was a, a, a temptation faced in his suffering. It was a temptation to, as we already talked about, to turn away from God in his suffering. And he was tempted in every other way as well. But because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, he he, he suffered with us so that we could be with him in our suffering. We don't ever have to suffer alone. Have you ever experienced suffering alone or feeling like you're alone in your suffering it's one of the most terrible things i think a human being can 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 struggle with that i'm alone in my suffering we don't ever have to be alone in our suffering god the son he took on our humanity in order to suffer with us he understands that temptation to turn away from god in our suffering And through the Holy Spirit, who he sent to indwell his followers, he empowers us to to remain dependent and reverent and obedient in the midst of our suffering, just as he was. But we must let Jesus teach us how to lament, just like he did. One author describes biblical lament as, and I love this, this quote, he says that lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. I want to read that again. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. If nobody else understands your suffering, if nobody else understands the loss of a loved one, feeling abandoned, feeling betrayed by a friend, having a mob try to cancel you for simply speaking the truth. Whatever it is, Jesus understands and he can help you. So in the first part of our passage, we see how Jesus suffered with us. 
Now let's look at the second part where we see that Jesus suffered for us. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Starting in verse 9, Hebrews 5, uh, 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And, And as we've already seen, Jesus suffered in order to learn obedience. And that learning of obedience led to what the author here says to him being made perfect. And by the way, this idea of Jesus being made perfect has nothing to do with his moral perfection as though he were immoral and learned how to become moral. This has nothing to do with his moral perfection. To perfect in this context is basically to bring something to completion, to its proper end or goal. In other words, it means that Jesus completed his earthly ministry ultimately through his suffering and death on the cross, which was followed by his glorious resurrection that we celebrate today on on Resurrection Day, on Easter, and his ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father on his heavenly throne. As I mentioned earlier, the whole point of God the Son becoming a baby in a manger was to live a perfect life and to suffer and die for our sins so that he could return to heaven with a body as a human, as the God-man Jesus Christ. And this was all in accordance with the will of God the Father, which we see clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and should come up on the screen. He's talking about us here when he writes, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So so having been made perfect through sufferings, Jesus became the source of our eternal salvation. When he ascended into heaven, he ascended as, as as, as a human being, fully qualified, And so God designated him, according to our passage, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to do a deep dive on this priesthood of Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. So here in several weeks, we'll we'll get to, uh, like I said, a deep dive. We're going to talk a lot about the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron and all that, and how that points forward to Jesus in the Old Testament. But um, for now, I just want to, I want us to understand just a few things about this priesthood. As we learned last week, a high priest was a man who was chosen by God to stand before God and to represent God's people before him. He had to be able to understand and to empathize with the sufferings and temptations of the people he represented so that he could deal gently with these people. And that idea of dealing gently we looked at last week was the idea that it's not the extremes. He's not cold and indifferent on the one hand. He's not burning with anger and frustration on the other hand. He understands what they're going through in their temptations and suffering. Um, And he was also responsible for bringing a sacrifice for their sins before God. This was the, the sacrifice for the sins of the people on the day of atonement that the high priest brought into the, the very Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so that was a role of the high priest to bring a sacrifice for the sins of the people before God. And the high priests of Israel, they brought animal sacrifices, which couldn't really atone for sin. But they pointed forward to the need for a sacrifice that could truly atone for our sin. This is huge. This is where we're going to get into the, the in, a, in a couple chapters, the whole idea of sacrifices of animals, innocent animals dying for the sins of the people, pointing forward to the, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the people, the sins of mankind in Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended into heaven, now get this. When he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he presented himself before God the Father as the once and for all atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And in that moment, being fully qualified to both be the sinless sacrifice and to present the, the sinless sacrifice, he was, he was both that which was sacrificed for our sins and the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. And he was fully qualified. That's why God designated him a high priest in that sense. So God the Son didn't need to become a man. We all need to understand this. By the way, I'll back up. God didn't need to create us. But God the Son certainly didn't need to become a man. He didn't need to suffer and die for our sins. He didn't need to be perfected so that he could become our great eternal high priest and the source of our eternal salvation. He didn't need to do any of that. Jesus suffered for us, folks, because he loved us and he loves us. Jesus suffered for us so that we could have hope even in our suffering. He wants every single person in this room to have hope even in the midst of suffering. The eternal salvation that he offers is the only thing that can take the sting, the wretched, horrible sting of suffering and death out. Only his eternal salvation and the hope that comes with that can remove that sting when we see the sufferings of this life in light of the glories of the life to come, we can be comforted and experience peace and even joy in our suffering. And we see that even in the followers of Christ in the pages of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who was no stranger to suffering, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you probably know that. He, he illustrates this well in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is what Paul writes. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. And folks, he's not minimizing his suffering or your suffering. He is magnifying the glory of, that awaits us through Christ our Lord. So don't think he's minimizing affliction. He knew the full extent of it. But he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Uh, as most of y'all know, um, my dad's throat cancer returned uh, in the fall. And uh, back in January, January 6th, uh, he underwent a, a major surgery, uh, 10, 11 hour surgery to remove his voice box. And uh, in the wake of all of this, he and I have been spending a lot of time together and somebody 
recommended to us uh, a really good book that he and I have been reading, and it's called, it's called, this will tell you something about the book. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And then the subtitle is Discovering the Grace of Lament. If you want to write that down, I'll say Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And, and we began reading this, and I was immediately struck by how the author, uh, and I tell you who it was, but I can't pronounce his name. I think maybe it'll show up here in a second. But uh, like in the acknowledgement section, before he even gets into the introduction, he ends his like one-page acknowledgement section by acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord. And he, he writes this. He says, finally, I'm grateful for a Savior who set his affection on me And set me free from the bondage of my sin. His crucifixion and resurrection remind me that he bought the right to make everything right. He bought the right to make everything right. And then he says, I long for the day when a little grave in Grafshap Cemetery will yield the body of my daughter. Her name was Sylvia. And my faith will be sight. While I expectantly wait, he writes, I lament. This man who wrote these words, he he understands that Jesus suffered for him so that he would have the hope of eternal salvation to help him persevere in his present pain in this life, even as he longs for that day when suffering and death will be no more. He grieves, he laments, but he waits expectantly and hopefully. Uh, most of y'all know someone in our church family. And by the way, if you're new uh, and you don't know anyone in our church family, come find me afterwards because I'd love to get to know you and, and meet you and, um, and hopefully see you again sometime at our church. But to know the Wayside Church family is to know that we have experienced suffering. If you know us, you know we have experienced suffering. We've lost loved ones, both young and old, grandparents, parents, siblings, children, even in recent weeks and months. We face difficult diagnoses, cancer, chronic illness. We face depression, anxiety, mental illness. Our our hearts have been broken by the pain of divorce, addiction, suicide. We've worked through the pain of infidelity. We've wrestled with infertility and indefinitely prolonged adoption processes. We've faced unexpected job loss and and unmet expectations when we do get jobs and opportunities. Unexpected home renovations and planned renovations that didn't go quite how we expected. We've suffered through conflicts in our families, in our extended families, and folks in our church family. We've gone through seasons of feeling abandoned or just lonely and isolated. To know our church family is to know that we have experienced suffering. But to know our church family is to also know that we have experienced God's grace and the hope of eternal salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what we want more than anything as a church 
is to share that hope with more and more people, the people that God has intentionally placed in our lives along our paths, people who are experiencing suffering without hope. We want everyone we know to know our Savior, who one Bible scholar describes as totally sufficient to meet every need, spiritual or material, of every Christian at any time, as the man of sorrows, wholly familiar with suffering, he is able to help when we are tempted, tried, suffering, abandoned, betrayed, bereaved, and even when we enter the valley of the shadow of death. I want to close by looking again with y'all at verse 9 in our passage. It says again that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And folks, first and foremost, to obey Jesus Christ is to trust in him. It's to trust that he loves you. It's to trust that he suffered to save you, that he came down to this earth to take on our humanity so that he could suffer to save you. It's to trust that he died for your sins and rose again. When we trust in Jesus in this way, we understand that he is with us in our suffering. And when we trust in Jesus, we hold on to the hope that we will one day be with him in his glory. But the very first step is to simply trust in him.